This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight, my guest is Julia Kolpitz, and we're going to be talking about domestic violence and especially looking at some of the legislation that's actually being debated and worked through uh, in the state legislature, even as we speak. Julia Kolpitz is the executive director of the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence, a statewide coalition of domestic violence resource centers. Julia is collaborating with the governor in bringing legislation to protect victims, to hold abusers accountable, and to prevent reoffense. Prior to working with domestic violence, Julia has worked to strengthen nonprofits in a host of areas, including equine-assisted therapy, counseling centers, and fostering community among cancer survivors. Welcome to Safe Space, Julia. Thank you very much, Anne, and I so appreciate being able to be here tonight with you. You're right, we are right on the cusp of some of these bills meeting their success or not. Tomorrow's the work session for a number of these bills, and it's been quite an exciting process as they've come forward. So I want to plunge into that, but first let's lay a little background, because um, so many of us saw the governor's state of the state uh, Mm -hmm. speech, in which he really took such a passionate stand on wanting kind of a legacy of his his term to be defeating domestic violence or reducing it in the state. And I understand that over half or approximately half of all homicides in the state have been domestic violence related. That's been a consistent figure. Um, And in addition to that, the 40 some percent of all assaults that are prosecuted or arrested in in Maine are domestic violence as well. The governor is intent on having there be some answers to increasing a safety net and increasing accountability for abusers. I met with him this afternoon, and he's also talking more about his campaign to involve men and to be able to look at the fact that men have such a significant role in the prevention, in setting role models for younger men, in creating a culture of prevention and change. So this comes from his heart. There's no question about that. I really feel that. And I want to end with that, some of kind of what you sense that men can do more as bystanders to take a more active role. But I, I want to I do some, th- some other things before we get mm-hmm. to that. So maybe we could start with a story about a recent experience of domestic violence or um, even a homicide. I know they're very public ones that happened this summer. I don't know if you might tell us a story of uh, just sort of what happens to give us a feel for it and where the legislation can really begin to make a difference. I'll be glad to try to do that and to sort of set the stage. I think that all people have an inherent need to love and be loved and to share some sort of warm and cozy and sustaining place against all the cruelties in the external world. And as we know in Maine, for some people, that is just not possible. Home is not a warm retreat. It's someplace where they feel terrified. Three out of ten women and one out of ten men reported experiencing domestic abuse in their lifetimes. And in this state, after this last summer and this last year in particular, we know way too much about what can go wrong and about the deaths of innocents. We have this situation with Amy Lake, murdered by her husband, Stephen Lake, along with their children, Monica and Cody. And I think that that story in particular tugged at the heartstrings of Mainers. Um, This image of this family with a lovely kindergarten teacher and everything looking perfect from the outside until June of 2010 when it began to emerge into the public view. Stephen held them at gunpoint for a day um, in their home and after that um, was charged with domestic violence terrorizing 
But a year later, after not being held accountable and not being tried even for that crime, almost to the day he murdered the three of them and killed himself. And there's something about that that tugs at every element of a a family destroyed, of a sense about a world that cannot protect its own, about some sense that there isn't a safety net for people who stand up and do everything right the way Amy Lake did in her attempt to find safety. And when you say that, what what did she do? Did she file a protection from abuse order? She sought services from a domestic violence organization. She cooperated with the prosecutor. She worked with the police. She sought a protection from abuse order. She time and time again said, this man is going to kill me. It's so disturbing. It is disturbing. And as I traveled around the state over the summer and fall, what I kept finding was a tipping point in Mainers. They've had it. They do not want to read more stories like that. They don't want to read about um, Sarah Labrador Gordon, who was killed not only in front of her children, but running down the street in front of horrified neighbors by her husband, um, who was a returning Iraqi vet. Just there were cascades, and I, I don't mean to single those out as more worthy victims, because all of the people that have died or been seriously harmed certainly deserve our sympathy and our respect. The building awareness of these sorts of cases came to a head around those deaths this summer. Well, I think what seems so particularly terrifying about the Amy Lake story is that she did everything she was supposed to do, presumably everything that professionals advised her to do, and it it wasn't enough. So I want to ask you, um, what what is being proposed right now that will make a difference, that would make her case never happen again? Well, I can't promise that her case would never happen again. However, there are a cluster of bills that people have been working on over the last year that each standing alone is not a magic cure. But when the group of them are all clustered together, there will be more accountability and more safety in place. And what's been striking about that is people are literally coming out of the woodwork to work on these things. Um, there's, there are voices springing up everywhere that are saying, enough, okay, what do we do? How do we pull this together? I think people can sometimes become incredibly depressed and discouraged when they hear stories like Amy's and Monica's and Cody's, and they withdraw from the issue with a sense that it's helpless or hopeless, there's nothing we can do. I noticed a spate of bloggers who were all quick to say, this is just the way it is, there's nothing we can do. What I would want to convey is a very different message, that there really are things that can be done to tighten that safety net. And I know you're asking what some of them are, so maybe I can respond to that. What we know is that there are a smaller core of very dangerous individuals that are more likely to end up around homicides. We also know from the Homicide Review Panel in Maine, which I sit on, that all of the homicides related to domestic violence are also related to changes in the status of a relationship. All of them? All of them. Meaning she's trying to leave? Meaning she or he, in one case, are trying to leave and that something is changing. That destabilizes the situation, and it lets us know that that point of leaving is the most dangerous moment. It has to be held secure and more safely. We also know that all domestic violence is not the same. All domestic abuse is horrible. It needs to stop. But a small subset leads to the serious reoffenses and the lethality incidents. One of the things that's been targeted as Um, an issue and an initiative is what has been used in most parts of all of your listeners' lives, risk assessment and effective risk assessment.
When they walk into a hospital emergency room, for example, there's an immediate triage risk assessment that identifies who needs the high price spread of resources and who can sit in the waiting room for a few hours and wait. Those techniques can be codified now in scientifically demonstrated evidence-based risk assessment tools. And what we're asking is those tools be used routinely in the management of domestic violence to identify who's most likely to be most serious risk. And would those risk assessment tools be used by the, the law enforcement officer who's called to the house or by the bail commissioner or by the judge? Who, who's going to? The information will be used by all of them. And we're not saying that this one tool is the be-all and end-all. It's part of a larger context of understanding risk. But it does create a common language for people to use. Ideally, it would be done at the scene by the police officer. And then that information would be conveyed to bail officers. I think that the, the bail commissioners, I think people were pretty horrified when they realized that all across the state, a bail commissioner could be woken up in the middle of the night and have no criminal history, no background information, and nothing to go on. And make a decision right and there? And make a decision right there, and that person is out the door in an hour. Over the phone? Over the phone. Sight unseen? Sight unseen. Now, um, I must say that Chief Justice Softly has done a huge piece of this progress because she's demanded that the bail commissioners who are an officer of her court not make bail anymore without first seeing the criminal history at least. I mean, the thought of letting a guy out without knowing what his violence history is is really well, we have very w- concerning. We have one gentleman who's part of one of the batter's intervention programs who had offered to testify, who told the story of being t- intoxicated, beating up his wife, being brought in, and making bail within a half an hour without anybody knowing anything about him, and being given a, a ride home to the same house, still intoxicated. <sighs> oh. So the, pl- the law enforcement usually are wonderful in understanding risk, but their gut-level assessment isn't always reliably communicated the rest of the way up the system. Well, and some, what we know about some abusers is they have a capacity to be very charming in the they face of indeed. authority. They do indeed, because that they don't really have true impulse control problems. In the rest of the world, they control their impulses quite well, usually. It's in their own personal environment of power and control and intimidation that they allow themselves to use violence as a strategy, not as a loss of control. Right. And um, so, um, and go ahead. So risk assessment is one piece of that, but that alone is nothing. A score and a test, even an integrated risk assessment piece won't get you far. And just out of curiosity, just to give a feel for it, mm-hmm. what would be an example of something that's on this risk assessment? I mean, Criminal history you'll find there. Yep. Um, the fearfulness that the woman herself feels, which is one of the strongest indicators of whether there's danger. You will find whether there's been certain kinds of past violence, whether there have been certain factors present in the family situation. Um, You're looking for sort of degree of lethality. You're looking at degree of lethality and risk of reoffense, those two pieces. And, you know, from reading your materials, I understand that when there's been strangulation, for instance, Mm -hmm. that would be a marker for high risk. It can be a marker for high risk, certainly. Um, and as you know, strangulation is one of the other initiatives that's appearing on the horizon. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, most people are not aware that what they commonly call choking is lethal very quickly. And even when it's not lethal, um, this is a caution to anybody who is misunderstanding playing any kind of sexual choking game. The cutoff of blood flow actually creates minimal brain damage each time it happens, so that subsequent brain damage is inevitable in situations of strangulation and or choking, as it's called. 
um, not only is it dangerous, but it's a very, very powerful tactic of intimidation. It's very interesting because I think people think of strangulation or choking as an issue of airflow. They're not even thinking about blood flow. Right. And it's either the cut-off of breathing, which creates anoxic brain damage from lack of oxygen, or it's the stopping of blood flow, which has the same long-term effect. And, of course, there's an enormous effect on the victim who is terrified by this. Terrified, and the quote, MCDV did a study um, across the state of Maine um, over three months to get some idea of impact. Because strangulation is not named at the moment in our criminal statutes, it just comes under a general assault statute, we didn't even have any reliable information about occurrence. So we began asking people. Um, the national statistics suggest that anywhere between 60 and 47 percent of domestic violence assaults include strangulation. We had 151 very brave women who came forward in Maine to take the survey, and the general consensus was of all of them that not only was it the most terrifying thing that ever happened to them, it wasn't necessarily done to kill, it was done to prove that the abuser could kill, and it was very effective at silencing any effort on their part to feel that they had any courage to leave or to do something different. So we're asking that strangulation be reflected because of its prevalence and because of its lethality as a particular kind of assault in Maine. And that within that, it also be recognized as a factor to take into consideration. And so if it's recognized as a particular kind of assault, what does that mean? Would it be therefore punishable more seriously? Or no. like bail would be set higher? Or what, no. what does that mean? No, not in, some states have done that. The tactic that we're asking in Maine is that it be included in the definition of extreme indifference um, to human health. Or, um, what that means is that when it appears, just by the virtue of strangulation appearing a serious strangulation, it indicates that um, it demonstrates an indifference to the, the well-being to a point that it can be prosecuted more easily. Prosecuted more easily? More easily. Right now, technically, it could be prosecuted under an assault statute, but we're not seeing it happen, and we're hearing from a number of the assistant district attorneys that it's difficult to prosecute because of the way the statute is crafted. Mm -hmm. So we're crafting it slightly differently so that people can actually bring it into court more effectively and hold people accountable in a better way. And does more effectively include more quickly? I mean, if I think about the well, Stephen Lake case, he didn't, this, this, he hadn't st stood trial and he'd threatened them with a gun for a day a whole year earlier. The Stephen Lake case has to do with the fact, in part, that our court system is so dramatically under-resourced. Rural courtrooms meet sometimes at the, this level of crime only twice a year. So if you get a continuance in the first one, which is what happened with Stephen Lake, you're not heard again for six months. And then if you get another continuance then, you're not heard for another six months. Some technique for addressing that clearly needs to be found. If you're just joining us, my guest is Julia Colpitz, Executive Director of the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence. And we're talking about the current bills being considered at the State House to uh, protect victims and to hold abusers accountable. So uh, tell me more about uh, Governor LePage's initiative to change the bail code. Cause I, so what, what you said already is that mm -hmm. if someone, if the bail commissioners are woken in the middle of the night and the person's still intoxicated and they don't even need a criminal history before they make a decision. So I'm assuming that some of those things 
Right. And as I mentioned, Chief Justice Softly has effectively, by her order that she talked about in the State of the State Address this year, she's handled the criminal history piece of it. She's literally said that the bail commissioners who are part of the court system are not allowed any longer to provide any bail without a complete criminal history within Maine. They're working still on finding the federal criminal history access. What Governor LePage addresses is a number of things. He's asking that there be certain circumstances in which people are held so that a judge reviews the bail. Now, a lot of folks that I talk to sort of look at me blankly and say, but doesn't a judge set bail? Because they think (laughs) about all those TV shows where the person stands up in front of the judge. The answer is no. A judge very rarely sets bail. In fact, a bail commissioner does. Um, The risk assessment and the other techniques that prosecutors use to identify risk will help people figure out who the high-risk offenders are and within that be able to hold some of them over until, in fact, they do stand before a judge. That does a couple of things. One is that it pretty much guarantees that those high-risk offenders are not going back to their families drunk in the middle of the night. Um, because they will be held until the next morning to our judge to take a look at them. It also creates a very clear drama that this is taken seriously. This is an important review, and you better pay attention. Thirdly, it allows there to be a thorough review of bail conditions. So the original bail conditions that are the initial bail conditions that are set are the right ones. That if appropriate firearms are taken away... the contact is restricted, and it will be much more personalized and individual to what's presented in front of them by that offender. That sounds all very encouraging. I want to ask now a little bit about protection from abuse orders, or what we often call PFAs, Mm -hmm. Um, because I understand that's part of that bill as well. And what I see as a psychiatrist is if I'm working with a woman who's being threatened and Mm -hmm. I encourage her to fill out a PFA, often I meet with some hesitation that, well, what good will it do? Mm -hmm. Uh, He's not going to respect it, and I don't really have a lot of faith that Mm -hmm. law enforcement is going to show up quickly and really help me. And in fact, it may get him more angry, and I may be more at risk when he finds out about it. So that's what I hear, and I'd love to hear your response to that. I have sort of a two-layered response to that. Those are all good questions, and that person should be asking those questions. What I would want to see them do is to have the access to one of the domestic violence resource centers. People sometimes have the mistaken notion that if you call an advocate, they're going to push you into doing something or tell you to leave. That's not at all what happens. What really happens is a longer process of safety planning so that when a person comes to the moment they decide to use a PFA as a tool in their safety planning arsenal, they are doing it with a complete package of responses that they're not doing it alone and unsupported, and they're not doing it without a full consideration of how they will take care of themselves, their families, their loved ones. So that's the first response. Get them in contact with a good um, advocate and planning. And maybe that's a good moment to give that number. Yes. So for anyone who might be in need, the number to reach is 1-866-834-HELP. That's 1-866-834-HELP. Right. And, and the, we'll say that number again at the end. Okay. And the advocate that you will reach is a trained and confidential confidant who will walk you through wherever you are in the process because it's yours to own. It belongs to you, and that will be respected. 
The second answer to that actually has a little bit of some good news, which is a national survey that came out recently and looked at the effect of protection from abuse orders, found that when you separate out high risk from other cases, the majority of people get help from a protection from abuse order. That they have leverage they didn't have before, they have the ability to access resources they didn't have before, and most of them actually are, are respected by the person on the other side of that order. What's not likely to happen is for high-risk individuals, particularly those engaged in other problems in their lives, um, they're less likely to respect those orders. So the way that is being recognized in some of the new legislation is to really look at what happens when someone doesn't respect it, when they violate an order. There are way too many stories of people violating orders and having nothing done. An example of that is the late case where orders were violated. The district attorney in that case did take that seriously and tried on one occasion to have Stephen Lake remanded into custody, but that wasn't the decision that was made. It wasn't made by who? Um, The judge in the case. And I'm not so the district attorney and the judge didn't see eye to eye on it. There were other issues involved as well. There was information provided by a therapist, um, perhaps well-meaning, but certainly uninformed, who pre- presented a letter saying that Stephen Lake was at no risk to anyone loved his children without doing a risk assessment. So that's there's real area for improvement here in the mental health community. There's a lot assessment. of area for improvement in the mental health community. There are some wonderful supportive therapists. There also are a lot of them who do not routinely screen for domestic violence, who still make the mistake of referring people for anger management, which is not a treatment for domestic violence. There is no treatment for domestic violence. Um, Or to couples counseling, which we know endangers women if it happens to be the woman, or endangers a man if it's a man. So there's a lot of work we need to do in cross-disciplines to make sure people know the appropriate resources that will encourage safety planning. And so if anger management and couples therapy are not the things to do, what, what is, what, where should therapists be sending well, abusive this, men? If you imagine, for example, um, a set of three circles, okay. and one of those circles is domestic violence, one of them is mental illness, and one of them is substance abuse. None of those lead to each other. Mental health, mental illness does not lead to domestic violence. Substance abuse does not lead to domestic violence. There are lots of people who are suffering from both circumstances who are never violent to the people they love. And all domestic violence does not involve mental health or substance abuse. But if you put those three circles together, like those awful little Venn diagrams we had to do in algebra class, remember those? You'll find an overlapping area. And the people most at risk to be lethal and dangerous are the ones who are the confluence of those three circles. So that substance use professionals, mental health professionals, and DV professionals, all of us have to do a better job at working together to identify that very dangerous middle ground. And just say you found that someone was in that very dangerous middle ground and you were a practitioner at mental health, where would you send that person? I mean, are you saying jail? Or would you say something like a batterer's program? Batterers programs are certainly useful and helpful. Mental health, you really need to look at what's appropriate within your discipline and then know what else is available. So if you're looking at a person in that middle and you're a mental health professional, is their mental status intact? Right. 
And if not, then they need to be hospitalized and they need mental health treatment as well as, but they need then to have the other components looked at as well. Got it. So I want to switch gears, Julia, because we have so few precious moments left. And I want to come back to what you were, where you started about making, you know, Governor LePage's vision to really make this a men's issue. And I'm aware that here we are, two women speaking about (laughs) this. But I'd love to hear what your views are about how to engage men around this, and in particular about uh, what we call bystander intervention and bystander silence, where other men keep silent in the face of these kinds of conversations and behaviors. Right. Love to hear your views. A couple of things quickly. Most people don't abuse the people they love, and that's the, that's the wonderful news. Within that, people don't need to like trot themselves down to their local domestic violence resource center in order to be able to be helpful. If you look at the people that have changed your lives, it's going to be the people immediately around you, your parents, your coach, your teacher. Those people need to be making strong statements about love and respect in relationships. They need to be speaking out when they see something wrong very directly. Workplaces need to have domestic violence policies. Schools need to have anti-bullying and domestic and dating violence policies. It's a question of all of us speaking up in the capacities that we're part of. When we talk today about men, there are two messages that I think are important. One is to the band of brothers, if you will. You don't have your buddy's back by letting him get away with something that's going to harm him and keep him from ever being truly loved. You have his back by saying, hey, guys, don't work that way. Don't do that. That's not okay. You're going to end up miserable and you're going to hurt somebody. So the whole message shifts from a code of silence to a code of caretaking. Men take care of other men. We saw it with the success of the don't let your buddy drive drunk motifs. This is no different. This is just as damaging to your friend's possibilities for a happy lifetime and to the women that you know are his girlfriends and around him, etc. So the, the myth seems to move and shift into a place where men start to see that standing up is taking care of each other as well as taking care of the women in their lives. That's a great way to frame it. This is how we love each other. This is how you care about somebody. Yeah. You keep them from doing something that's wrong. Mm-hmm. It's that simple. Right. And a number of people, men in the legislature even, have said, you know, I can see places where I've been silent, and I need to look at why I kept my mouth shut. You know, what did I think I was accomplishing? Yeah, and what do we know about that? What do you think? I think some of it, it, it has to become a habit. If you're not used to speaking out about things, it's hard to find your voice. Once you find your voice and you start to get that feeling of power that it brings you, because it does, It feels you a real sense of power. It's what women have known for a long time as abused victims find their voice. But what I find with men as I begin to talk about this and they start to do it, they stand straighter. They start to say, well, wait a minute, of course I don't want that to happen. I don't have any respect for someone that does that. And I kind of smile and say, well, you're already looking stronger and your voice is stronger, so how are you going to use your voice? Um, Because they don't have any more tolerance for abusers than anybody else does. And it's a question of just altering that and finding that voice. You know, I think about everything that's going on in the media right now about Rush Limbaugh, um, Mm. horrible um, hate language toward Sandra Fluke and her testimony about Mm -hmm. contraceptives. And it feels like that was really a contribution to misogynistic hate language, which feeds the culture that supports domestic violence. And do you see men speaking out about that? Well, I see men more and more able to say that they're uncomfortable with that. Mm. 
It's not how they see the mo- their mothers. It's not how they see the women they love. It's not how they see their sisters, cousins. And when you bring it home to the love you feel in your own family, they, they feel ashamed and chagrined that other males are acting like that. That's the first step towards speaking up, is recognizing it's not you. You know, you don't want that for the people you care about. And in an odd way, people like Rush Limbaugh, who have no sense of shame, all become a trigger for other men to say, I don't think it was right to call that young woman those names. That could have been my daughter at college. Or that could have been, you know, whoever. Right. So Some young woman I love and respect. Absolutely. You know, my mother didn't raise me that way. Wherever their primary emotional link is, they get more in touch with that. And once they're in touch with that emotional link, they can't really go back to pretending they're indifferent because they're not indifferent. Right. So often becoming a father to a daughter can really change that. Um, So I want to end by just giving people um, phone numbers and resources. Julie, I so appreciate what you've done. I know there's more bills out there than we were able to cover today, but... What I understand from you is that it would be very valuable for people to call their state representative and their state senator and communicate how important this issue is. I think it is. The people on the committees are committed. They've heard the testimony. They've seen the pain. They're on board. Some of the other legislators for whom this isn't right at their forefront, they need to hear from Maine what I heard from Maine, that we've reached a tipping point about violence. We don't want the cost in our world anymore, and we want you to do something about it. So if you'd like to do that, please call the Maine State House for Representatives. The number is 1-800-423-2900. That's 1-800-423-2900. And if you want to reach your state senator, the number is 1-800-423-6900. That's 1-800-423-6900. Julia Kolpitz, I want to thank you so much for being my guest tonight on Safe Space. You're very welcome, and I appreciate you making time for this kind of conversation. My thanks tonight to Ken Capron for mixing the sound, to Maurice Lennon for the music, and to Neil McKenty for serving as my consultant. If you'd like to listen to this show in its entirety or email the link to a friend, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. When you're there on the site, you can go into the subscribe window and subscribe to get a weekly announcement for the show. You can also download the show onto your phone from the iTunes store if you go into podcasts. And lastly, you can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog.